I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. This one, The Mean Girl's Murder, written by Emma, read by me. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, of course, to Jen, who edits this show. I was reading in the comments lately, and then I totally realized I've recorded an episode before this. People were like, Simon, why don't you thank Jen anymore? And I said, like, I've got such a small brain. I'm sorry. Uh, Jen is the video editor. Did I mention that? Let's just jump in. Uh, I've never read that this before. That's the format of the show. Let's go. We all grew up with Hollywood's idea of what high school is like, not the high school musical version, which was just plain unrealistic, but more like experiences the characters had in Easy A and Mean Girls, one where true friends were hard to come by and fake ones had no problem starting rumors about you. But even though your own high school experience might have been far different from Hollywood's version of high school, we've all had a fake friend or two who either abandoned us for someone else, had only befriended us for what we could offer them, or had no problem stabbing us in the back when it suited them best. Eventually, though, we all left high school and its teenage politics behind and hopefully made new and more lasting adult friendships that would last for years. But the protagonist in today's story uh, would never have that opportunity. This, dear viewer, is the story of Skylar Nice. Yeah, I feel, I don't know, American high school is like something I feel like, you know, it's in every Hollywood movie, every like teenage TV show. I feel like I, I you know, I feel like I know a lot about that and, you know, the cliques and all of this stuff and those lockers lining the hallways and cafeterias and stuff like that is so different from school in the UK. It's just like, it's a totally different vibe. And I always was like, American school looks cool. Like they get to, you don't have to wear uniforms for one. You get to leave school at like a reasonable time. And we had to, I had to school on bloody Saturdays, which was a nightmare. Come on, join the joyride. The 5th of July, 2012 was a typical Thursday and nothing about it should have made it stand out. The evening passed just like any other in the Ness household. Dave and Mary Ness sat at the living room of their two-bedroom apartment in Morgantown, West Virginia, watching an episode of CSI Las Vegas. When their only child, the 16-year-old Skylar Annette Ness, got back from her shift at Wendy's at 10.15 p.m. Ah, CSI Las Vegas. Love that shot. CSI Las Vegas was just CSI Crime Scene Investigation. I, 2012, I'd probably stopped watching it. 2012? Yeah. Yeah, I had. But I watched that show for years, and I, I was obsessed with CSI for a long time. It did get a bit repetitive. <laughs> Just a bit. As was a habit, Skylar gave each of her parents a kiss goodnight and then took a shower to scrub the smell of french fries and grease from her body, tossing her Wendy's uniform into the hallway for her mother to wash. Once she was clean, she headed into her bedroom, closed the door, and spent the new next two hours texting and tweeting... 2000. How long's Twitter? Twitter has, I guess, been around longer than 10 years, right? Or 11 years now. Twitter, Twitter's original or like old. It's not as old as Facebook. I had Facebook University, which was ages ago. Argu and arguing with her two best friends, Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schoaf. For some time now, Sheila and Rachel were making a habit of excluding her from their plans, and Skylar often felt like the third wheel. She had been growing increasingly frustrated with the situation and fought with Sheila about it on more than one occasion, and had been venting about it on her Twitter feed. For weeks already. But soon after she had returned home from work, both Rachel and Sheila had texted her, inviting her to go joyriding with them later that night. Only they didn't intend to steal a car and take it for a spin. No, the three girls planned on getting into Sheila's car and just driving around aimlessly, listening to music on full blast, smoking pot, taking videos and selfies of themselves, and just enjoying spending time together, just like they had done almost every night that summer. Both Sheila and Rachel were insistent that since Rachel would be heading to church camp for two weeks on Saturday, it meant that this might be the last opportunity for the three of them to hang out before school started up again. Around 11pm, they seemingly managed to convince Skylar that they didn't want to fight, they just wanted to hang out with her, and Skylar agreed, getting up out of bed and getting ready for a night out with her two best friends. These people don't sound like your best friends, to be honest. They sound like people who have cut you out of their plans because being teenagers they've just decided that they don't like you anymore for whatever reason because teenagers are kind of pieces of i'm sorry and i get the feeling because this is a true crime podcast that they're probably going to get together and do something horrible to you which is insane because you're all teenagers you got your whole lives ahead of you and you're really going to ruin everything so early why 
Rachel sent Skylar a text at around midnight to let her know that she and Sheila were on their way, and Skylar locked her bedroom door, took the black cushion vanity bench that she had kept in her closet out, and opened her bedroom window. She carefully leaned out and lowered the bench to the ground, dropping it the last few feet. She then slid out of her bedroom window, adding to the already fading bruises on her thighs, and landed on the bench. She hit it around the corner so that she could use it to climb back into her room later that night, and then waited for Sheila and Rachel. At 12.31 a.m. on the 6th of July 2012, the newly installed security cameras around their apartment building recorded Skylar as she ran out of her hiding place next to the apartment building and got into Sheila's silver Toyota Corolla. Morgantown had a curfew for minors, so they had to take a few detours to avoid the police checkpoints, but eventually the three girls took Route 7 out of town, drove through the neighboring town of Blacksville, crossed state lines into Pennsylvania, and headed down Morris Run Road toward their favorite hangout spot. Well, they are driving along. I guess this town could be on, like, the border of a state, but it sounds like they're on a total mission. And also because I feel like I've seen enough American movies to be like, if they cross state lines to murder someone, doesn't that crossing state lines make the crime like more serious or federal, perhaps? And so the big boys get involved, and that's going to be bad for them? Get the feeling. Sheila often took them there since it was practically deserted and close to some property that her father owns and they parked the car next to a gnarly old tree that stood out from the rest of the surrounding forest. There, the three girls got out of the car and Sheila produced a joint, patting her pockets for a lighter. When she couldn't find one, Skylar offered to go and get one from the car and made the mistake of turning her back on her two best friends. She might have heard them whisper, one, two, three, to each other without realizing what it meant. But at the count of three, Rachel and Sheila took out their knives that they'd hidden underneath their hoodies, grabbed onto Skylar's shoulders and arms, and started stabbing her in the back. Why are you doing this? Skylar managed to jerk loose and tried to get away, running down the empty road. But Rachel tackled her to the faded tarmac, and then both she and Sheila were on top of Skylar, taking their rage out on her. Skylar managed to wrestle Rachel's knife away and slashed at her, managing to cut Rachel's ankle. But Rachel screamed and took the knife back and continued stabbing, aiming for Skylar's neck. The two girls would stand over a crying Skylar and watch as she bled out her last word. Why? It echoed in the air around them. They didn't answer her, of course. Instead, they dragged her body towards the gnarled old tree, took out the handy wipes, paper towels, bleach, clean clothes, and a shovel that they'd stashed in the trunk of Sheila's car, and they got to work. They left Skylar underneath that old tree. They washed their hands and arms in a nearby creek and got dressed in their clean clothes. When they finally drove back to Morgantown, four hours had passed, and Skylar's ghost would now haunt them for the next six months. Unless they die in the next six months, I hope her ghost is haunting them forever. Best Friends Forever Some of our US and Canadian friends might already be intimately aware of the details surrounding Skylar Ness's murder. Her case has been featured in various documentaries, and her father, Dave, has made multiple TV appearances to talk about his daughter's disappearance and murder, especially once her murderers were sentenced. Unlike the other cases we've covered, Skylar's story is a true crime murder mystery drama worthy of Netflix's 13 Reasons Why or One of Us is Lying. So, for those who are unfamiliar with her story, here's a background on Skylar's so called best friends. Skylar first met Sheila Reddy when the two girls were in second grade. They met at the Shack Neighborhood House, a community center and swimming pool that is located outside of Morgantown. The two quickly became friends, with Skylar spending most of her summer days at Sheila's house in Blacksville. Just like Skylar, Sheila was also an only child, but aware Skylar had two devoted parents, Sheila's parents became separated after a nasty car accident left her father partially crippled. Her mother, Tara, had to raise Sheila on her own. Money was tight, and Tara spent less and less time at home to provide for her daughter. Yet the two were close, and Sheila was the center of her mother's existence. Tara eventually married a coal miner named Jim Clennenden when Sheila was 13, causing Sheila and her mother to have fights that often turned into screaming matches since Sheila didn't like Jim. But it did mean they would have to leave Blacksville and move to Morgantown. The move would allow Sheila to transfer from Clay Battelle High School in Blacksville, the 20-minute car ride west from Morgantown, to University High School, the same high school that her longtime friend Skylar Neese attended, and Sheila was elated at the prospect. By all accounts, none of Skylar's other childhood friends who also attended University High School liked Sheila. Allegedly, Sheila craved to be the center of attention, could often be mean-spirited towards others, and tended to be controlling towards Skylar. There's a lot of people with friends who don't like each other in this, which I guess is quite a childish thing. But it's like to say, oh, no, he's my friend. I don't like him. He's a dick, but he is my friend. <laughs> who? What? Are people friends with people who they think are dicks? I don't think so. I'm not friends with people who I think are dicks. Because even if I was friends with them, 
you'd be like, you just don't hang out with them very much. And then you become not friends anymore. You know, like in The Sims, where you don't see someone enough and you, those social points drop off. And you're like, oh yeah, I guess we're not friends anymore. That's weird. Sheila's old friends from Blacksville claimed that she'd been popular back at Clay Battelle High, but now that she was at a new school, she had to make new friends, so she flirted and kissed her way into a new social circle. Skylar and Sheila befriended Rachel Schaaf in 2011, after Skylar struck up a conversation with her in one of their shared classes. Just like Skylar and Sheila, Rachel was an only child, her parents got divorced when she was four, and she lived with her mother, Patricia. Unlike Skylar and Sheila, though, money was never an issue for Rachel. Her mother's temper, however, certainly was. Allegedly, appearances meant everything to Patricia, and Rachel was under a lot of pressure to be the perfect teenager. She was said to be friendly and kind, an active member of the drama club, regularly attended social gatherings at her church, and volunteered with the Special Olympics. She was also surrounded by her childhood friends at University High, but just like Skylar, she felt drawn to Sheila. And there they were. They made the perfect picture as well. Skylar was the honor student, a smart, caring, petite blonde with big blue eyes. Sheila was the popular, confident brunette who loved the spotlight and acted as the leader of the little gang. And the red-headed Rachel uh, was the talented one who sang like an angel and wanted to become an actress someday. Sheila was the more daring of the three girls and soon began started dragging her to BFFs to parties and hangouts, introducing them to older teens who taught them how to drink and smoke weed. Sneaking out to parties and going on joyrides became one of their favorite pastimes and and they were careful not to be caught out after curfew. But those who'd grown up with Rachel and Skylar noticed that they'd changed since becoming friends with Sheila, and not just because they were suddenly going to parties and smoking weed. The change was most obvious in Skylar, though. After her daughter's disappearance, Mary Niece would say that her daughter was obsessed with Sheila, even going so far as to dye and straighten her curly blonde hair so that it matched Sheila's straight dark ones. Her diary was also filled with details about Sheila's life, but contained very little about her own. On September the 20th, 2011, Skylar wrote in her diary that she felt closer to Sheila than anyone she'd ever met and couldn't imagine life without her. But the trio's friendship wasn't all rainbows and butterflies, and somewhere along the way, something changed. Rachel and Sheila grew closer, and soon they started excluding Skylar. Amaret Hughes, one of the classmates in whom Skylar had started confiding in shortly before her death, was quoted as saying, I had two best friends, and Skylar had two best friends. We were going through the same thing at the same time. Sometimes I would see that Rachel and Sheila would match and Skylar wouldn't. They'd both wear jeans and a pink shirt and Skylar would be in yoga pants. And yet the benefits of being one of the trio far outweighed the downsides because even though their friendship was falling apart, Skylar jealously clung to Sheila and the social benefits their friendship brought her. But during a six-day vacation at Myrtle Beach with Sheila and her family in June of 2012, Skylar and Sheila had a big fallout and their friendship never recovered from it. A month later, Skylar would be dead. Let me just interrupt today's video to tell you about our fantastic sponsor, and that is Stitch Fix. Though when you're shopping for new clothes, it could be a stressful and time-consuming experience. Personally, it's something I always go to the store and I'm like, oh, they don't have quite what I imagined in my mind, <laughs> or it doesn't fit. Often it's like, why this? I went on to I went to a, a department store for my sins the other day and tried on a jacket that was labeled small, and I'm like, bro, in what world is this small? And I'm not a tiny person. I'm a regular-sized man. And I was like, it's just massive. I was like, what? Well, I need an extra small. I'm not, I'm just a regular sized person. What's up with shops? <laughs> this is why Stitch Fix exists. They make the process so much easier. All you have to do is you go over to Stitch Fix, you answer a few questions about what you like to wear, what you don't like to wear. And now they'll, they'll, you know, they'll be like, do you like this? It's like, oh God, I wouldn't be seen dead in that. And they're like, okay, whistle boy, we got you. And then you can, you can also say whether you're open to trying new styles, which I was not. <laughs> Stitch Fix is style experts that go to work finding items exclusively for you. Look, it's really impressive what they've got. Every piece is hand-picked for you. It's unique to your size, and they get that right, as well as your style and your budget. You receive five pieces to dry on our time. You keep what you like, and you send back what you don't. Shippings, shipping, returns, exchanges, all free and easy. Plus, this isn't some subscription service. You don't have to keep going, and there are no hidden fees. You can try once or get automatic deliveries. They have women's, men's, and kids' clothing. So no matter your style, there's something for everyone. So don't forget, so go to stitchfix.com casual to get $20 off your first purchase. That's stitchfix.com casual to get $20 off your first purchase. And this is only available for a limited time, so be sure to purchase within two days of signing up. Love their pressure for you there to get your style on, which I think is a good thing, because it's one of those things you just procrastinate on, isn't it? <laughs> so go do that. What was that link? Uh, stitchfix.com 
patreon.com slash casual. $20 off your first purchase and now back to today's show. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Have you seen this girl? Dave Neese was the first person to realize that Skylar was missing. When neither he nor Mary could get a hold of her, Dave called Sheila and asked whether she'd seen Skylar. Sheila said no, that she hadn't seen or talked to Skylar that day, and provided Dave with the cell phone numbers of two of Skylar's other friends. They hadn't seen her either. When Skylar's shift manager at Wendy's called the niece household to let them know that Skylar hadn't shown up for her shift, Dave and Mary called 911 to report their daughter missing. Sheila and her mother arrived to help the nurses look for Skylar, and they went door to door to ask if anyone had seen signs of the missing teenager. When Officer Bob McCauley arrived to follow up on the 911 call, he joined the search, and when they returned to the Ness household later that evening, he sat with Dave and Mary as he went through the newly installed surveillance tapes. On it, they saw Skylar getting into an unknown vehicle at 12.31am, but the footage was too grainy to identify the vehicle. Sheila admitted that she and Rachel had picked Skylar up at 11, but they told the police they'd dropped her off again at 11.45. They didn't drop her at home, though. Sheila told the police that Skylar had asked them to drop her off at the end of the road so they wouldn't wake her parents up. Sheila then told the police that she didn't recognize the vehicle in the surveillance footage. No one thought to double-check her story, and Sheila's version of events became the official timeline. After all, at this point, no one had any reason to suspect that she had anything to do with Skylar's disappearance. Yeah, because it's absurd. You'd be like, okay, sure, but you're just her teenage friends from school. You'd be like, that's not who murdered her. It's going to be the creepy middle-aged dude with a white panel van who has kidnapped her and murdered her. It's not going to be her best friends, or even her best friends who don't even like her anymore, because they're high school students. It's just bizarre. It gives me the vibes of that early episode we did. Was it the Loeb people? Leopold and Loeb? Something like that? These two guys who just wanted to kill someone because they wanted to know what it was like to kill someone? It's super psycho. And Sheila's got these culty vibes. Like, she can bring people in with her, like, charisma and stuff. And, like, make them do shit. So I think Sheila's a psycho. And she's raped... Uh, and obviously, um, who is it? Rachel's also not, you know, brilliant. Because she's also taken part in this murder. But I think Sheila's this you know, charismatic, cult-leady, ringleader. Ooh, I don't like it. Soon, everyone thought that after Sheila and Rachel had dropped her off, Skylar got into an unknown vehicle with someone else, giving birth to the theory that she'd either met up with some unknown boy or had run away. But Skylar's dad insisted that she hadn't run away. Skylar had unpacked a bag, and her contact lenses, lens solution, and her cell phone charger were still in her room. She had also left the vanity bench outside her window, proof that she'd planned on using it to sneak back in. Not quite sure about that. Um, where else is she going to put the bench? She's not going to, how's she going to get it back inside without, you know, going, she has to leave it there. No? So for the next six months, Dave and Mary would lead the search for their missing daughter, both in Morgantown itself and online, assisted by family, Sheila, and some of Skylar's other friends. They would set up mental milestones for themselves when Skylar would return home, Sunday night, after a week, the day before school started. But when every milestone came and went with no sign of Skylar, they finally admitted to themselves that their daughter wasn't going to come back home alive. It didn't take the police long to figure out that Sheila Reddy and Rachel Schoff were hiding something. The investigative team ended up with two working theories during their search for Skylar Ness. One, Skylar was hiding away at a boy's house and would resurface eventually. Or two, the three girls had gone to a party and Skylar had somehow died because of an accident or an overdose and her friends didn't want to get into trouble for her death. Either way, they were convinced that Sheila and Rachel knew exactly where Skylar was. All they had to do was convince the two girls to tell them what had happened to Skylar Ness and where to find her body. They're going to separate them, interrogate them, make them believe that the other talked, do the prisoner's dilemma thing. Almost as soon as Skylar was reported missing, her case was handed over to Officer Jessica Colbank from the Star City Police Department, who, despite her young age, had a lot of experience locating missing teenagers. As she did with every child that went missing, Officer Colbank entered Skylar's information into the FBI's National Crime Information Center database as soon as she was assigned to the case. According to the book The Savage Murder of Skylar Ness by Deline Berry and Jeffrey C. Fuller, 
The FBI makes this database available to all police agencies to help facilitate the flow of information so that crimes can be solved faster. Sounds like a very good idea. The Star City Police Department also contacted the state police headquarters to have them issue an Amber Alert for Skylar. However, at that time, the state police had four criteria that had to be met before an Amber Alert could be issued. Number one, there had to be indications that the child had possibly been kidnapped. Number two, they had to be under 18. Number three, it was suspected that they were in certain danger. Number four, and an Amber Alert could help locate them. Additionally, a child had to be missing for 48 hours before the Amber Alert could be issued. Since the surveillance footage suggested that Skylar had willingly gotten into the silver vehicle, the state police had labeled her a runaway, so no alert was issued. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Additionally, a child had to be missing for 48 hours before an Amber Alert could be issued. Wait, so if you're just hanging out, you know, filling up your car at the petrol station and someone drives up and snatches your kid away from you and drives off on the highway, you're like, hey, police, can you uh, do that Amber Alert thing? I don't know if we have something similar to this in Europe, but like I've seen it in movies. And they'll be like, nah, we gotta wait 48 hours before we can do that. <laughs> if I know anything from CSI, CSI, the 48 hours, the first 48 hours, really important. That's bizarre. That must be not necessarily for every case, right? <laughs> But even though the state police weren't interested in Skylar's disappearance, the FBI got involved on the 7th of July 2012, the very day after Skylar was reported as missing. The FBI doesn't usually get involved in cases of missing teenagers, but it had been suggested that the disappearance of a three-year-old girl named Aaliyah Lunsford might have prompted their involvement since the FBI reportedly suspected that the two cases might be connected. Either way, I would have loved to see Sheila's face when an FBI agent turned up at a doorstop the Monday after she and Rachel had murdered Skylar and told her they had a few questions for her. Yeah, that's got a different vibe. You know, maybe that you, you've you murdered someone. You kind of expect maybe the police will show up. They'll question me. We've thought about this. And then when the FBI show up with all those hats and the big jacket with FBI on the back, you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh, this is more serious than I thought. When Special Agent Morgan Spurlock and Officer Colbank... Wait, isn't Morgan Spurlock the name of that guy who did the supersize me thing? Isn't that that guy's name? Am I imagining that? It's not exactly a common name. It is. <laughs> what a coincidence. Sheila and her family were gathered together in their converted garage to watch the first televised news report about Skylar's disappearance. But the almost festive atmosphere in the house bothered Officer Colbank. I'll never forget how they were gathered in the garage, just hanging out, sitting on chairs, just chilling. I'm like, okay, your supposed best friend is missing. Why are you sitting here and having a good old time? Officer Colbank questioned Sheila and listened to her account of how they'd picked up Skylar and then dropped her off again, but the story didn't make sense to her. When she asked Sheila why they'd picked Skylar up from her house but dropped her off further away, Sheila insisted that Skylar had been mad at them and insisted on getting out earlier. But another thing was bothering Officer Colbank as well. Why haven't you done more online to try and locate her? You see, Mary Niece had gone onto Facebook to let the whole world know that her daughter was missing, and soon a Facebook group was established that was dedicated to sharing any information that could help find Skylar. Skylar's other friends were messaging her constantly on Twitter and Facebook, urging her to come back home, but neither Rachel nor Sheila had posted anything relating to Skylar in days. Sheila explained that she'd been too upset to post anything, and when Officer Colbank called her on her bullshit, Sheila burst into tears, and her mother brought the interview to an end. And just like that, Sheila jumped to the top, of Officer Colbank's list of suspects. And now it was Rachel's turn. Officer Colbank tracked Rachel down to a church camp and gave her a call. When she asked Rachel whether she knew anything about Skylar's disappearance, the teen claimed that she didn't know that Skylar was missing. Um, wait. Yes, she did. <laughs> Again, Officer Colbank called bullshit. Skylar had been reported missing on Friday, and Rachel had only left the church camp that Saturday. There was no way she would not have heard something. Yeah, because the parents phoned, they phoned her friend, they phoned the other girl. If they were innocent, she would have definitely phoned her best friend and been like, yo, have you heard about this? Like, or a text message or something. When Officer Colbank asked Rachel whether she might have any idea where Skylar could be, Rachel said that she and Skylar weren't that close and that Officer Colbank should talk to Sheila instead. Sensing that she'd reached another dead end, Officer Colbank asked Rachel to report to the police station for an interview once she returned from camp. Rachel agreed, but she never did show up for that interview. So, two weeks later, Officer Colbank and Special Agent Spurlock tracked Rachel down to her home to finally have that face-to-face -face interview. In essence, her version of that night's events matched Sheila's. Yes, she and Sheila had picked Skylar up from her home at 11. They dropped her off at the end of the road 40 minutes later, because Skylar had asked them to. No, she hadn't spoken to Skylar since. But when Officer Colbank and Special Agent Spurlock asked her where they drove to and what route they'd, and what route they'd followed, Rachel gave them contradictory answers. 
stating that they drove down the main road, Patterson Drive, but had to also keep to the side streets to avoid the police checkpoints. When Officer Colbank confronted Rachel with the fact that it was impossible to drive on Patterson Drive and keep to the side streets, Rachel struggled and said she couldn't remember the exact route because she had been too high at the time, and then she said that if they wanted to know the exact route, that they should ask Sheila. They didn't learn anything new and ended the interview. But as they headed back to the Star City Police Department, Officer Colbank and Special Agent Spurlock both agreed that the two teens were lying through their teeth. They just didn't know why. Wanted for information, Skylar Nice. In the meantime, Skylar Nice became a person of interest in a bank robbery. Okay, it's <laughs> a bit of a twist. I know, the twist's in this story, right? Indeed. First, the FBI gets involved. Now we're throwing a bank robbery in there. Ten days after Skylar had disappeared, a man wearing a full face mask walked into the Blacksville branch of the Huntington National Bank. He wore a backpack and he didn't say a word as he calmly pointed his gun at the loan teller. Even though the silent alarm had already been activated, the man still handed his backpack to the teller who filled it with cash. Then the man fled through the back door. It was the second time in five weeks that the bank had been robbed, with the first robbery occurring a month before Skylar had disappeared. What? <laughs> Your bank gets robbed twice in five weeks? Where do you live? Metropolis? Um, the Batman one? Gossam? The West Virginia State Police sent two troopers to investigate the robbery, Corporal Ronnie Gaskins and senior trooper Chris Berry. It's like every police department getting involved. State troopers, state police, FBI, regular police. Next up in this episode, the NSA. It later became known that one of their suspects, a man named Derek Conaway, as well as his younger brother Dylan, were friends with Skylar, Rachel, and Sheila. Rumor also added that Dylan and Sheila were dating and that Derek would often give the girls rides to parties. Gaskins and Barry soon theorized that maybe Skylar and her besties had been involved in the bank robberies or knew enough that the Conaway boys got rid of Skylar to keep her quiet. So they went to meet up with the Nessies and asked permission to go through Skylar's things, hoping to find any clues as to what the Conaway boys were up to. Mary, thinking that the troopers were finally looking into her daughter's disappearance, told them that they could look at whatever they needed, which included Skylar's diary, hoping that it would help bring their daughter home. According to senior trooper Berry, reading Skylar's diary changed everything for them. It didn't take them long to realize that Skylar wasn't a bank robber, but her caring nature and her soft heart shone through in her diary, and as trooper Berry puts it, you could tell how much she cared about people. After reading her diary, Gaskins and Berry both became convinced that Skylar didn't run away, and just like that, Skylar Nice had posthumously recruited the state troopers to her cause. Pretty Little Liars As soon as summer ended and school started up again, the rumor mill started churning out one theory after another. Skylar had snuck out to meet with the boy. She had run away from home to get away from abusive parents. She'd gotten drunk at a party, got raped at a party, overdosed at a party, got murdered at a party. You get the idea. Yeah, just rumor mills. But there was one thing all the teenagers in Morgantown agreed on. Rachel and Sheila knew exactly what happened to Skylar. During this time, Sheila was an almost constant presence in the niece household. She and her mother had helped the niece family and their neighbors to search for Skylar when she first went missing. Then Sheila and her mother helped Dave and Mary hang up missing person posters all over town. Sheila constantly followed up with Mary and Dave to hear how they were doing, whether they'd heard anything yet, and what the police were telling them. Once Sheila even asked whether she could spend a few minutes alone in Skylar's room, where she then burst into tears. And it was Mary who comforted Sheila and told her that everything would be all right. Sheila's a psycho. This is some shit right now, Sheila. What are you up to? It'd be months before Mary and Dave realized that Rachel was markedly absent throughout all of this. Eventually, Officer Colbank heard about Sheila's visits to the niece household and ended up ordering Skylar's parents not to give Sheila any information about the case, correctly guessing that she was using the nieces to fish for more information regarding how the police investigation was progressing. The police suspected the two girls, and soon enough, their families and the public also started asking questions. Kids at school constantly asked them about Skylar. Their families kept wanting reassurance that they hadn't been involved in whatever had happened to Skylar, and Skylar's other friends kept demanding answers, sure that Sheila and Rachel weren't telling the police the truth. Even Twitter got involved, with more than one Twitter account straight up accusing Sheila and Rachel of murdering Skylar and getting away with it. At Snyder28, Josie made a point of harassing the two teens, posting statements like, Besties don't like having to answer questions of their guilt, and bring pretty little liars down together. Hashtag promise to never leave you cold. 
After Officer Colbank had pointed out that Sheila had tried to contact Skylar on social media, Sheila would constantly post to Facebook to tell people just how much she missed Skylar. At one point, Sheila even complained about the constant pressure that was placed on her and Rachel in order to give the police something to work with, saying to quote, all I want is for my best friend to come home. I wish I knew something to give the police a lead or so she can come home, but I don't know anything. I'd do anything to have her home right now, and I wish I knew something like everybody thinks I do. And Dave, feeling protective towards his only child's two best friends, offered his support, responding to Sheila's post with, Hang tough, babe. Do not let things get you down. But in September 2012, the police turned the pressure up a notch when search warrants were issued for Rachel and Sheila's electronic devices. The police also showed if you <laughs> what? So you murdered someone and all of this stuff, and you haven't got a new phone or lost your phone or deleted your phone or formatted your phone and your computer? What are you up to? You murdered someone. Deleting the evidence is uh, less of a crime, as we previously discussed. The police also showed up at the school to search their lockers, giving the rumor mill new material to work with, and allegedly convincing a lot of teens that Rachel and Sheila had murdered Skylar. The girls' cell phone records and text history indicated that the two of them had been chatting with Skylar until she disappeared, and then they made no further attempt to contact her. Their records also showed that they hadn't been together at 11pm that night like they'd claimed, but when they did meet up, they drove to Blacksville. So now the police had concrete proof that the two girls were lying about where they'd been that night. Oh, I suppose, of course, there's also records. Like, um, I, I, today we all use WhatsApp and stuff. Back in the day, there'd be like text messages going to like cell towers and stuff. And that would be distinguishable from all of the other data being sent back and forth from a phone. I mean, and also just idiots. If you're going to kill someone, why are you taking your phone with you? That's insane. You know, your phone is basically if the CIA could have designed a device to spy on people, that's what they would have designed. It's a spying thing. Don't take it with you when you're committing crimes. What's wrong with you? That must be in the rules. Then Special Agent Spurlock and the state troopers had a breakthrough. They'd been watching the surveillance footage of Skylar over and over again, trying to determine the make and model of the car that had picked Skylar up after the two girls had dropped her off. And after weeks of completely missing the obvious, they realized that only one car showed up on the video footage. Sheila's silver Toyota Corolla. Finally, it clicked that the only people to pick Skylar up that night were Sheila and Rachel, and the police again turned the pressure dial up another few notches. They called Rachel and Sheila in for questioning again, but this time they told Rachel that the police knew that they'd been in Blacksville. So Rachel changed her story, confirming it, yes, they'd been in Blacksville, and then she told the police that they'd been driving around, and then Skylar got mad at them and asked them to drop her off in the middle of nowhere. When they did, she ran into the woods and disappeared. Uh-oh. If the police weren't, uh, the police are already suspicious, and now it's like, come on, please, let's go. You, the, the, you can see the end is coming. They went looking for her but couldn't find her, and after a while, they just returned home, leaving Skylar to fend for herself. They hadn't seen or talked to her since. Of course, Sheila wasn't aware that Rachel had changed her story, so Sheila replaced the same old story that they'd been spinning for months. But once she and Rachel had a chance to catch up, Rachel told Sheila that the police knew they'd been in Blacksville, so Sheila called the police station and told them that she'd lied, and now had to change her story because, well, of course she did. There's nothing suspicious about that! <laughs> In November, several of Sheila and Rachel's friends and classmates were given subpoenas to appear before a federal grand jury, and later their texts would prove that the two girls were worried that the FBI was asking them about Skylar's disappearance. Um, don't be texting your friends about being worried about the FBI asking you about a disappearance. That is a conversation to have in person. I know you're teenagers, so you're dumb, but that is really dumb. Have you not seen any movies where crime happens? Have you not watched CSI once? Your parents watch it, don't you know? On the 6th of November, Sheila texted Rachel the advice she had received from her attorney, Mike Benninger, claiming that it was all going to be about drugs. Um, yeah, good luck with that one. Do you, they're not summoning a federal grand jury over you smoking pot and driving your car around. Um, <laughs> I don't know what your lawyer's thinking, or you've not been honest with your lawyer. Rachel didn't seem reassured at all, though, and asked, Okay, how does he know that's all this is about? I'm sure it's more for me. And Sheila responded with... Because that's what the US attorney said. They're going to follow the drugs to get to Skylar. In the end, we're not sure what the teens who had been subpoenaed were asked, but then Sheila and Rachel each was asked to undergo a polygraph test in mid-December. Allegedly, Sheila wasn't concerned about the test, even going so far as to tell Rachel she was probably going to fail because of nerves. No big f***. 
And I'm definitely not scared about lying, but it's not like they'd know the difference, lol. Um, yeah, they're probably not going to know the difference because polygraph is junk science, which we shouldn't take seriously. It's basically a 50-50 chance they get it right and there are two questions, so it's just basically nonsense. Um, and definitely not something that'll hold up in court. Probably going to fail because of big nerves. And then she says, but then sending these messages to each other is that that is that is going to get you caught when they subpoena those messages and it's talking about you lying about not killing someone so that's going to be a problem well Sheila did fail twice yes the result of the polygraph is not usually used as evidence in court but still nah i don't nah I'm a, there's like i don't know there's nothing to polygraphs it's just Rachel, on the other hand, was scared about undergoing the polygraph test so much so that she jumped out of her father's car while they were on the way to the attorney's office and ran to Sheila's mum's place of work to hide out. Uh, that isn't looking that... Again, the polygraph test is... Trying to get out of the polygraph test by jumping out of a moving vehicle tells me something about the, the polygraph test that you're about to... That, that'll tell me more about whether you're lying or not than the polygraph test itself. Her polygraph test had to be rescheduled for the end of December. Her mother, Patricia, was at the end of her rope when it came to dealing with an increasingly rebellious and anxious teenager, and the two fought constantly. Patricia had even gone so far as to ask her sister, Rachel's favorite aunt, to take Rachel out to dinner and interrogate her since Rachel had begun to avoid Patricia and her constant questions. As a result, Rachel was looking forward to visiting her dad so that she could get a much-needed break from her mother and the constant pressure that she was under. I'm not surprised you're anxious and under constant pressure. You murdered someone and the FBI are looking for you. <laughs> or like, they're on your case. That's a bad time. <laughs> but on the 28th of December 2012, Patricia and Rachel had just returned home from their Christmas holiday when Patricia told her daughter that she wasn't going to her dad's anymore. Instead, her dad was moving back in to help her keep an eye on her and Rachel realized that she wouldn't get the much-needed break that she'd been looking forward to. And to put it simply, Rachel finally broke down and lost her sh**. She started raging and screaming about how her parents had ruined her life, and the resulting fight had the neighbors rushing out of their homes in time to watch as Rachel tried to bash her mother's head in with a candelabra. Oh my lord. The fight had become physical and violent, and in the end, Patricia called 911 and told the police that her daughter had lost it and that she wanted her to be put in jail. Mum of the Year award right there. Um, also, it seems her mum, like calling the police on your family, is fine. If your family are being violent towards you and you can't handle it, that's what the police are there for. Am I being unreasonable? Like, mum of the year? She's attacking you. She's violent. Like, I get it, but there's a point where it gets too much and you need help. This is like, um, wife of the year right there, not calling the police, calling the police on the husband that batters her. That just seems, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but that just seems like a bit insane that you can't. When the police arrived at the Shove household, Rachel had barricaded herself in her bedroom, threatened to kill herself, and had to be calmed down before the police could lead her away. The police eventually convinced Patricia to have Rachel placed in a mental institution instead of jail, and Rachel was committed to the Chestnut Ridge Center for observation until the 3rd of January 2013. While she was there, Sheila wasn't allowed to see or talk to her, and when Rachel's parents went to collect her at the end of her stay, Rachel was a changed person, one who was now willing to talk to the police. We stabbed her. Mike Angotti, Rachel's attorney, gave Corporal Gaskins a call that afternoon that said, My client has something she wants to tell you. Is the immunity offer still on the table? Representatives from the Star City Police Department, the West Virginia State Troopers, and the FBI all sat down around a conference table in Mr. Angotti's office and watched as Rachel was strapped to a polygraph machine. Agent Brock Ambrosini from the FBI led the interview, read Rachel her rights, and, and then started asking questions about the night Skylar had gone missing, leading with their theory that Skylar had died from an accidental overdose. He started by asking her if Skylar was dead, and Rachel confirmed that she was. Agent Ambrosini then asked her if Skylar's death had been an accident. Rachel shook her head and said we stabbed her. Rachel told them everything then, how she and Sheila had been planning Skylar's murder for more than a year? But they had only decided to go through with it in early June 2012. Jesus, what is wrong with your brain? She explained how they meticulously planned when they were going to do it, how they were going to do it, how they were going to get rid of the body, and what their alibis for the night would be. Police officers from all three agencies sat and listened as she calmly told them how she and Sheila had hidden the knives in their clothes, how they'd counted to three before attacking Skylar, and how they'd stood and watched as Skylar bled out on the faded tarmac. She even showed them the scar on her ankle from where Skylar had cut her that night. 
She explained how they couldn't dig a grave for Skylar because the ground was too hard, so they dragged her body to a nearby fallen log and covered it with branches and leaves and dirt. She explained how they'd gotten dressed in clean clothes, and then Sheila had gotten rid of the knives, the shovel, Skylar's purse and iPod, and their bloody clothes, and how Sheila had gone back in the days following the murder to move Skylar's body to keep the police from finding it. And when the police asked Rachel the same question that had fallen from Skylar's lips, why? Rachel shrugged and said, we just didn't want to be friends with her anymore. So don't be friends with her anymore. Why would you kill her? This is like the most insane reasoning ever. Initially, both girls had been offered immunity for more information on Skylar's disappearance, but now Rachel had admitted that they'd murdered Skylar, the immunity offer was null and void. Oh my god, where's your lawyer? Get that immunity offer signed and then spill your guts. Don't spill your guts and they'd be like, can I get immunity? <laughs> What are you doing? Not that, I, not that I want you to get immunity. You belong in prison. In exchange for a written confession, as well as her taking the police to Skylar's body, Rachel was offered a sentence of second-degree murder instead, meaning that she would receive 20 to 30 years' worth of jail time instead of a life sentence and at least have some hope of eventually being released from jail. Yeah, so if she's... Se uh, how old is she? 17? 16? 17? So let's say she's 17, released in 20 years. She'll be 37 which is a long time in jail, but at least you then have a large stretch of your life ahead of you. Rachel ended up taking the police to the approximate location on Morris Run Road where they'd murdered Skylar, but now everything was covered in snow and she wasn't sure whether or not the spot she'd shown the police was the correct one. The police made a note of the location and Rachel was allowed to go back home and get on with her life. What? <laughs> For now? Is that some sort of bail that they're on? Why is she able to just go free? She's just admitted to murder. Why? Well, according to Trooper Berry, Rachel wasn't exactly the most trustworthy person they'd met, and they needed to find some physical evidence that would prove that Rachel was telling the truth. She's admitted to murder. Surely you could hold her until... She admitted it. On the 16th of January 2013, they finally found Skylar, and her remains were sent to the FBI's laboratory so that a full autopsy could be done to not only prove how she'd died, but that the remains that they'd found did belong to Skylar Niece. On the 13th of March 2013, the police finally confirmed that the remains they'd found in January were indeed Skylar's, and the search for her officially ended. Rachel Schoaf turned herself in on April the 30th, 2013. She would eventually plead guilty to secondary murder by, quote, unlawfully, feloniously, willfully, maliciously, and intentionally causing the death of Skylar Nees by stabbing her and causing fatal injuries. And she would ultimately receive 30 years in prison for the murder and kidnapping of Skylar Nees. On the 1st of May 2013, the day after Rachel had turned herself in, the state police cornered Sheila and her mother outside a local restaurant, confiscated Sheila's car and cell phone, and arrested her under suspicion of kidnapping and first-degree murder. She was taken to the Laurie Yeager Jr. Juvenile Center in Parkersburg, West Virginia, until she could appear in court, and according to Officer Colbank, Sheila's only concern was that her hair was a mess, and she wanted to look presentable when they got to the detention center. But Gaskins simply told the image-conscious teen that no one's going to be waiting, Sheila. No one cares. Gaskins left her to pout all alone in the back of the police cruiser. Big girls don't cry. Because their crime had crossed state lines, I knew there was something to that, there was a question about whether Sheila and Rachel should be tried in West Virginia or Pennsylvania. From what I understand, the argument was that the initial crime, the kidnapping of Skylar, took place in West Virginia, even though her actual murder took place in Pennsylvania. Eventually, it was agreed that both Rachel and Sheila would be tried in West Virginia, and they would both be tried as adults, meaning that they could receive the maximum penalty for murder instead of being released when they turned 21. Yeah, for them to be released when they turned 21, I get that they're teenagers, but they knew what was going on. This is like full-on premeditated murder. I think it should be a mitigating factor, certainly, that they were so young. But should it be released on 21? Absolutely hell no. On the 6th of September 2013, a grand jury charged Sheila Eddy with one count of kidnapping, one count of first-degree murder, and one count of conspiracy to commit a murder. With her head held high, Sheila Eddy pled not guilty to these charges, and her trial was scheduled for the 28th of January 2014. In preparation, the prosecution combed through dozens of hours of video of the three girls, most of which featured Sheila performing for the camera in one way or another. They looked at the social media posts that the girls had made, their texts, their calls, everything, including the numerous Facebook posts that Sheila had made after Skylar had disappeared. 
Rachel's social media had been wiped clean before she handed herself over, and as a result, most of the conversations that the girls had over Twitter were one-sided, and the public and journalists had a field day interpreting these messages so they fit their versions of what had happened between the trio. But even though the police hadn't found the murder weapons and the rest of the evidence that Sheila had dumped, they were able to gather other physical evidence that linked the two teens to Skylar's murder. The FBI's autopsy of Skylar Nice's remains indicated that one of her vertebrae had been nicked with a sharp blade, which backed up Rachel's claims that they'd stabbed Skylar. Skylar's DNA had been found in the trunk of Sheila's car, directly implicating her in the murder. Video footage confirmed that Sheila's car had driven towards Blacksville on the night and Skylar had on the night Skylar had disappeared, and cell phone records placed both Rachel and Sheila in Blacksville at the time of Skylar's death. And most importantly, they had Rachel's confession. This is open and shut. You are going to prison for possibly ever. On the 24th of January 2014, four days before Sheila's trial was scheduled to commence, her attorney, Mike Benninger, let the prosecution know that Sheila wanted to plead guilty with mercy to all charges. And I'll get to what plead guilty with mercy means later. I've never heard of that before. So, good. After the prosecution stated their case and Sheila admitted her guilt with a broken, yes, sir, the court asked whether or not her attorney wanted to make a stand and defend his client. He stood up and calmly informed the court that he had, quote, examined the entire scope of the law to attempt to find a reasonable defensive law for my client. I have found none. I have looked at all the evidence and have evaluated every piece of paper, every video, every audio recording provided to us in discovery and pre-trial proceedings, and I have found negligible, if any, factual basis upon which to develop a defense in this murder and conspiracy case. Oh my God, when your own lawyer is saying that, you know you're so f <laughs> oh god which in essence meant that even though sheila didn't dig a grave for skylar she'd managed to dig a grave for herself with her lies and constant need to be the center of attention i would have loved to see her smug little face when her attorney sat down and said honey pouting and crying won't get you out of this one now onto the sentencing. Now, I'm not an expert on US law, and I haven't been able to get a clear explanation of exactly what pleading guilty with mercy means, but from my understanding, Sheila's attorney essentially asked the court to be compassionate and, and provide her with a degree of leniency when sentencing her, because, of course, she'd been so young when she'd brutally murdered her best friend. They also asked that she should be allowed a grace period of a month before being transferred to the adult holding facility, since it would be the humane thing to do and it would allow Sheila time to adjust to the idea of big girl prison I get the feeling they're going to deny all of this and they're going to send her to prison forever, which would be um, well, quite well deserved. Well, Sheila Eddy was sentenced to life in prison with the option of parole after 15 years. Wow, okay, never mind. Wait, didn't the girl who was less involved and admitted to it get 20 to 30? Although we didn't know when she was eligible for parole. I hope less than 15 years. Satisfying, I mean, I don't know if I hope less than 15 years. It just feels fair compared to this girl's sentence. Satisfying her request for mercy with a caveat that should be transferred to big girl prison the moment a bed opened up for her, whether that was the next day or a week after. But throughout all of this, Sheila never apologized for what she'd done. Rachel had gotten up in court and publicly apologized the Nesses and her own family for what she'd done, but Sheila had only scoffed at the idea, smiling sweetly at Dave Ness whenever she caught him looking at her in court. Of course, nothing that Sheila, Rachel, or the Nesses do can bring their daughter back, but Dave Ness has vowed to be at every single one of Sheila's parole hearings to ensure that Sheila Eddy never gets to set foot outside of prison again. Oh, okay, so 15, so life in prison, and then she can apply for parole after 15 years, but that doesn't mean she's going to get it. With friends like these. After Sheila and Rachel were sentenced, the teens, who'd once been friends with Skylar, reported that they'd never liked Sheila. Some people would later say they'd never liked Rachel either, and those who once stood by the two murderers were ridiculed and shamed for publicly defending them. Of course, people are quick to change their opinion of someone once they learn they're convicted murderers, but hindsight is 2020, and after Skylar went missing, a lot of people realized that the two teens had been openly discussing Skylar's murder in the months leading up to her disappearance. In fact, in October 2011, the two were heard discussing the best ways of getting rid of a body in biology class mentioning Skylar by name. They would also openly talk about how much they disliked Skylar, with Rachel allegedly telling a friend that she wouldn't mind if Skylar died. That is some... Yes, people are shitty. Wow. Allegedly, some of her classmates had warned Skylar that they were discussing her murder, but Skylar had laughed it off, saying that Sheila liked to play games like How Would You Rather Die by Drowning or Suffocation. Sheila sounds like a delight. But as far as we know it, it never crossed her mind that Sheila and Rachel would hurt her. Otherwise, she never would have gotten into that car with them. But why did they kill her? 
According to Skyler, she witnessed Rachel and Sheila having drunken sex during a sleepover on the 16th of August 2011. She wrote in her diary how uncomfortable it had made her, and allegedly it led to her becoming the third wheel whenever the girls hung out. She became jealous of the friendship that Sheila and Rachel shared, and it led to fights between Sheila and Skyler, with Skyler threatening to tell everyone she knew in a post on Twitter on the 6th of September 2011. Allegedly, it was Rachel who then suggested that she and Sheila should get rid of Skyler, since both girls thought that Skyler would tell everyone their secret if they stopped being friends with her. But they only seriously started planning her murder in June 2012 after Skyler and Sheila had returned from Myrtle Beach. This theory has been put forward more than once, and ten years after Skyler's death, it's the accepted motive for her murder. Neither of the girls had ever provided police with a better reason, instead sticking to their claim that they just didn't want to be friends with Skyler anymore. And I don't honestly know what to say to that, or how to even start to rationalize it for myself, never mind all of you. So instead, I'm just going to end with rest in peace, Skyler. You deserve better than this. Slimmered Appendices Number 1. Alia Lunsford, the three-year-old missing girl who prompted the FBI to help with the investigation into Skylar's disappearance, was reportedly murdered by her mother. Her two sisters have witnessed the murder and handed their mother over to the police. Alia's body has never been found, but her mother is currently serving a life prison sentence without the possibility of parole for her murder. Number 2. After Skylar went missing, an old friend of Dave Ness started a petition to change the requirements for an Amber Alert to be issued, and Mary in particular fought to have the necessary changes brought into legislation. Skylar's law was approved and signed off in May 2013, and now requires that an Amber Alert should be issued as soon as a child is reported missing, regardless of whether the child is believed to have been kidnapped. Excellent. Good. I'm glad. Number three. In their book, The Savage Murder of Skylar Ness, authors Delene Berry and Jeffrey Fuller suggest that Derek, Derek Conaway was arrested under suspicion of being involved in the Blacksville bank robberies. I tried to find some news reports to confirm this, but instead found out that Derek Conaway is now a convicted sex offender for sexually assaulting a teenage girl, and his brother Dylan, an ex-boyfriend of Sheila's, received three years probation for dealing in illegal firearms. It just proves that you really should keep an eye on the kind of people that your kids hang out with. Yeah, this would be intense. Like, you're... Your teenage kid is hanging out with a bank robber who turns out to be, or some, who was it, a sex offender? It's like, Jesus. <laughs> I got kids. I got a daughter. I'll be like, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Until you're 18, I make your decisions. <laughs> and I know that sounds intense and overbearing, but no bank robbers. <laughs> That's my line. Bank robbing and worse. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for watching. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please leave it a review. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and thanks for watching. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.